This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sarah Aykroyd, who actually published a manuscript in uh, the International Journal titled Postoperative Complications of Epidural Analgesia at Hysterectomy for Gynecologic Malignancies and Analyses of the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program while doing her residency at uh, Temple University in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences. Now she is a fellow in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the section of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Dr. Ramirez. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely a pleasure. And uh, congratulations again on this uh, very important and interesting uh, publication. So I wanted to just uh, first start by asking you, obviously, um, one of the main principles of enhanced recovery after surgery guidelines is the, the use of epidurals. And, and yet there are a number of centers that do not routinely use epidurals for numerous reasons, including issues of hypotension or efficacy. Uh, but, you know, interestingly, you were interested in complications from the epidural itself. And this is not routinely um, as mentioned or covered in, uh, as part of the enhanced recovery um, discussions. So I wanted to first ask you, um, why were you interested in, in this particular um, uh, topic and uh, what led you to doing the study? Sure. So, you know, that's a great question because you're right. If you look at different ERAS publications or even protocols in the literature, you can see that the use of the epidural is definitely not unanimous. Um, we all know that the epidural has historically been used for pain control and labor, and, you know, especially in surgery, it's been adopted much more, um, especially in the colorectal, and even the benign gynecology field is another way to decrease opioid medications for patients who are trying to recover from surgery. But in we know that our gynonc patients are not in the same boat as a lot of these benign GYN patients. They're a lot more complex. They go, they have, you know, more complex surgery and they have different baseline characteristics. So, you know, I noticed even between the two sites during my residency that the epidural was not, you know, common even in our ERAS protocols. So I dug into the literature and I actually found that there really was not a ton of data on the GYN oncology population. And the data on complications and effectiveness were inconsistent. More concerningly was that I had found that there was, um, an, you know, reportedly increased amounts of complications such as venous thromboembolisms, urinary tract infections, and things that I did not expect to see. Um, so being familiar with the NISQIC database or the, the National, the American College of Surgeons uh, National Surgical Quality Improvement Database that's maintained by the American College of Surgeons, um, um, they go through 30-day complication rates. And I had been worked with this database in the past, and I wanted to see if this question could be explored in the data set. So that's kind of where I came to the hypothesis of this study. Yeah. And if you can just uh, briefly go over what, what were some of the, or what should we uh, routinely consider the, the proposed benefits of, of regional anesthesia and, and what are some of the disadvantages from, from all the literature that, that you read and you gathered? Sure. Um, you know, definitely regional anesthesia, um, specifically epidurals, uh, you can provide a continuous infusion 
that will often give patients good pain control. And the idea being that you can avoid the use of opioid medication, as well as the undesirable side effects of opioid medication. So nausea, vomiting, itching, lethargy, constipation, all things that patients don't really want to experience after surgery. One interesting but almost unexpected finding that I saw on my literature search was that um, there's not that much literature on it, but um, there was actually improved survival with an epidural. And so um, one recent group at Memorial Sloan Kettering did actually report um, a perioperative epidural. Um, I believe it was in Gainanc. Um, they found that there was improved progression-free and overall survival in patients who received an epidural with ovarian or primary peritoneal cancer. Um, the reason for this latter finding is thought to be associated with how the epidural works. So by inducing a sympathetic block, they thought that the decreased uh, immunological stress response, response can actually explain why maybe survival was affected. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and then looking at disadvantages, you know, epidurals, um, reasons why they're not given and or included in care plans, they're technically difficult. There's about a 30% failure rate for placement. There are obvious contraindications for placement for safety, such as thrombocytopenia, especially in some of our interval debulkings, uh, coagulopathies or patients on anticoagulation. Uh, and then there's the rare complications, epidural hematomas, abscesses, as, and as well as site pain. And then practically speaking, I do think that a lot of patients are worried about um, undergoing a procedure sometimes, and they're worried that, is this going to be enough to cover the amount of pain that they experience postoperatively? Yeah. And the one thing that I, I, you know, I do have to add, too, is thinking about, I mentioned already how the epidural works with the sympathetic block. This I think contributes to a lot of what we expect when you give an epidural um, and what has been you know, highlighted a ton in the literature that you can have hypotension, hypothermia, and this can sometimes result in some vasocongestion while the epidural is running. You know, a lot of blood can pool in the lower extremities and the pelvis. And I think that may have led me to some of what my findings were in this study. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you. I mean, that's, certainly we recognize the benefits, but, you know, a few of those uh, elements that you mentioned as disadvantage happen uh, a, a few times, and then you certainly are discouraged from using it um, again. So, um, Sarah, what I wanted to um, ask you and tell you, uh, if you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your study totaled 2,035 patients that underwent uh, abdominal hysterectomy for gynecological cancers. Who had an epidural? How did you how did you gather such numbers, and and how many hospitals does this number represent? Yeah, of course. So, for those who are not familiar with the American College of Surgeons National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, it is the Surgical Outcomes Database. It was started in the 1980s in an effort to identify performance measures as well as decrease surgical morbidity and mortality. So, the database as a whole, including all surgeries, collects data from over 700 hospitals. Um, it's nationally validated, and each center that participates in this data set has specially trained clinical reviewers that extract information from patient charts. Um, and, you know, I like to separate that because it's actual from the patient charts versus from insurance claims that sometimes can be hard 
to read about different complications. Um, in our specific hysterectomy cohort, um, it included data from over 147 hospitals. And looking at the numbers involved in this, there's over 106,000 patients who underwent hysterectomy for the years that we chose. So it's a pretty large database and pretty heterogeneous as far as its catchment. So Sarah, um, can you tell us a little bit about your inclusion and exclusion criteria? And I'm particularly interested in uh, why you excluded patients who underwent a laparoscopy. Yeah, of course. So, you know, for our cohort, we did look at the years 2014 and 2017 in the hysterectomy specific data set. Our inclusion criteria included women diagnosed with ovarian, uterine, or cervical cancer, and had to have undergone a major procedure. So hysterectomy was the chosen procedure. Mm -hmm. In this, From these years, over 42,000 patients actually underwent a hysterectomy for cancer. Um, and of these, about two, over 2,000 of them had received an epidural anesthesia at time of hysterectomy. The inclusion criteria included that they had to have general anesthesia as their primary anesthesia and could only receive one additional regional block. So that would be epidural. Anybody who also received a spinal alone, a tap block, um, or local anesthesia were excluded to help um, kind of take any other additional regional distractors away mm -hmm. from our conclusions. Our cohort, um, as I mentioned, was 2,000 patients um, in the epidural group, and we matched them to controls. And so looking at the entire database, um, laparoscopic and minimally invasive cases were included for a couple of reasons. So first in the literature, there's you know, very little data um, on epidurals in this group, mostly because the initial studies show that it's not effective for more conservative incisions such as for laparoscopy. And because of this, it's not necessarily used. In our data, for instance, there was about 26,000 patients who underwent MIS hysterectomy and less than 0.5% of patients received an epidural. So it was reasonable to exclude them since they were such a small part of the study population. Yeah, no, completely understand. And um, one of the things also you mentioned in your study that you selected the primary outcome of interest as being 30-day occurrence of pulmonary embolisms and, and deep venous thromboembolisms, uh, pneumonias, and uh, urinary tract infections. My question is that, you know, certainly many would likely say, well, you know, th these are not particularly related directly to the epidural. Um, so I was wondering, how would you answer those, uh, those comments? Sure. So um, we chose these specific complications because many of them could be related to immobilization or delayed recovery. I think on a practical level, um, I think a lot of people worry about patients not mobilizing after surgery uh, with the epidural in place, um, particularly, you know, patients not feeling comfortable, staff not feeling comfortable, patients, even though sometimes they can have a walking epidural, it's not always full function for them. Mm -hmm. So we worried that, um, or we were more interested in seeing if higher immobilization, such as getting a blood clot or urinary dysfunction because uh, fully catheters were left in longer, could be 
seen in this population. And then pneumonia was, you know, an additional um, complication that you could see in the data set. And the reason we looked at that was that some, um, some literature shows that the epidural can somewhat affect ventilation in the sense that um, there is decreased intercostal muscle or ribcage movement with um, lung inspiration on these higher epidurals that can go up into the thoracic region. So those would be the epidurals that are sometimes placed for these midline vertical incisions. And of course, you know, these in general are not very high, um, they don't occur frequently in our population. So given the size of the population, we were hopeful that if there was anything, we would be able to see it. And we're actually quite happy that we did not observe these complications. Right, right. So one, one um, uh, last question about methodology. Uh, you mentioned you performed the propensity score matching, and I was wondering if you can uh, just briefly explain what that is for uh, the members of the audience who may not be familiar with this uh, strategy in your methods. So pr propensity score matching is a method that is used in a lot of observational studies. And basically what it does is it utilizes a multiple logistic regression model to create comparable cohorts. So um, in this case, we matched all covariates that we wanted to include in the epidural group to a control group who um, on, in a distribution would have similar amounts of each covariate. So when choosing these variables, you want to think about um, what are the baseline characteristics that you would want to be equal between your groups and what are both known and unknown confounding variables and interactions. So the hysterectomy cohort was much larger than the number who received an epidural. So based on the criteria used in our baseline characteristics, um, we were able to find matched controls and create these two even uh, cohorts, so epidural and no epidural. And, you know, we found at the end of our matching that there was no difference between the groups. So now on to the results. Are epidurals associated with higher complication rates? Well, from our database study, we did find that our 30-day postoperative complications for women who underwent hysterectomy for cancer, uh, women who received an epidural had an almost 14% higher rate of complications, although they were mostly minor. There were no mortalities. Um, the highest um, was an increased rate in blood transfusion those who received an epidural. That was about 6% more than those who didn't. And then there were smaller, but um, they were statistically significant, um, higher rates of wound disruption, superficial wound infection, and delayed bowel function. Uh, length of stay uh, was on average one day longer, and readmissions in the epidural group was slightly higher in the epidural group, but hard to tell if it'd be clinically relevant with how small the increase was. Mm -hmm. And Sarah, so as a follow-up to that, uh, you know, you mentioned some of these uh, complications, uh, blood transfusion, wound disruption, and uh, surgical site infection. And again, uh, you know, uh, some, some critics might say, well, none of those are due to the epidural, but to the type of surgery or perhaps, you know, the complexity of the surgery. Um, how would you respond to them? You know, I do think that in every study, you have to think about alternative explanations besides your original hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I do think that for our specific study, I think it's a good idea to contextualize our results with our methods. 
So the idea behind propensity scoring is that you're essentially creating equivalent comparison groups such that you can try and elucidate relationships or comparisons between the groups. And your covariates are carefully selected to help remove some of that bias or confounding that you expect. Mm -hmm. um, in our specific cohort, um, I, you know, to answer your question, surgical complexity as well as more advanced stage, those are definitely things that we thought about when we created our propensity groups. So we created almost proxy variables for them. So to account for the complexity of surgery, um, anybody who had received a lymphadenectomy at time of surgery, was that was used as a variable in the propensity matching. And in this cohort, 62% of patients in both groups had received a lymphadenectomy. And then to account for stage, we used the presence of preoperative ascites to be a proxy for more advanced stage disease. And then there were other factors that were used as well to help account for anemia and blood loss, including type of cancer, since we know that patients who receive who have ovarian cancer are more likely to have blood transfusions, more likely to bleed. And we also used baseline preoperative platelets and hematocrit included in that propensity score to help kind of adjust for some of the bias in our outcomes. But I have to say with that being said, some of the complications can plausibly be explained by how the epidural functions. Um, by producing a sympathetic block pay, nociception is blocked, but also sympathetic outflow is blocked. And this can result in some of the complications that we observed, um, although we can't directly say that from our data, uh, hypotension, hypothermia, these can all be related to wound healing and the need for blood transfusions. So I thought that it was an interesting, you know, explanation to kind of contextualize our results. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that this is more of a thought provoking study rather than, you know, it's definitely, it's not a definitive conclusion. You use databases to kind of see large numbers and trends. So, yeah. And, and you, you did mention uh, about patients with ovarian cancer. So you did a subset analysis. Uh, anything specific you found in this patient population just with ovarian cancer? Yeah, no, no, not really. So this was the largest disease um, type in our database. It represented about just under 50%. Basically, these patients um, had the same uh, result, a higher complication rate. And um, the only specific complication rate that was higher in the ovarian group was just a higher rate of blood transfusions. And this is already known. Yeah. And I also noticed that uh, the hospital length of stay was longer and that readmissions were higher in the epidural group. Do you have any hypotheses as to why this might have been? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to say specifically from a database reasons why a longer length of stay could happen. Of course, it could be the complications listed, um, but it could also be, you know, our underlying hypothesis is that it's prolonged healing or you know, lack of progression of post-operative milestones that result in longer hospitalizations. Um, in the article, we did mention that the most common reason for readmission was for superficial infection or sepsis. But again, from a database, I can't really say much about the context. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and Sarah, as a follow-up, um, you know, certainly, obviously, you, you have been so involved with this and with this particular project. 
And I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously there's this theory about epidurals leading to longer anesthesia time, more use of intraoperative vasopressors, increased time to ambulation, worse bowel recovery, delays in voiding. Uh, is there any truth to this? Do you think there is evidence to support this uh, these claims? I think, you know, each of the complications you mentioned definitely have all been highlighted in the literature at one point or another. Um, I think that there's pretty good evidence about hypotension related to um, requirement of more vasopressors. And even some studies had uh, noted that they were using more colloid versus crystalloid uh, during surgery to account for the hypotension. Um, other things, you know, with GI motility, sometimes, I mean, I read a few articles that suspected that thoracic level epidurals um, were affecting a little bit of GI motility and microcirculation due to basal um, congestion, the splanchnic and celiac plexus. Um, so that's definitely, I think, a theory that's out there. Um, as far as whether or not it contributes to longer anesthesia time, I think that that's very difficult to answer unless there was a standardized way mm -hmm. to give an epidural. You know, even in the most detailed studies, we still don't know when did you have the, when did the anesthesia start time start? Mm -hmm. When did you place the epidural? Was it pre, was it in the OR? Did you start the, the medication in the epidural? Because some anesthesiologists um, it varies, but mm -hmm. if you don't run the medication during the operation, then you will not have to be fighting the hypotension as much. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's hard. There's no specific protocol about medications, mm -hmm. timing. So it's hard to really conclude about that. Yeah. And then one, one uh, additional question. I remember obviously many, many years ago, I was in residency fellowship and they used to tell us, you know, epidurals cause an increase in the rate of venous thromboembolism. Is there, is there any truth to that? Has there, has that been put to rest or uh, what's the latest on that? I can, you know, say with fair confidence that nothing in the literature really shows that venous thromboembolisms um, are associated with the epidural. Both our large database study and more current studies out in the literature as well are not showing that to be, you know, a side effect of the epidural. And even, you know, we all give preoperative heparin um, prophylaxis at time of surgery. And, you know, the American Society for Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine does support that and recommends prophylactic heparin even after you place the epidural. It's typically about an hour after. So. Mm -hmm. Now, Sarah, getting back to some of the comments you made in your uh, discussion and, uh, you know, obviously enhanced recovery after surgery uh, protocols are implemented routinely now in many, in many specialties and in many institutions. Um, you mentioned that this study was done before the ERAS guidelines came out. Um, what, what do you think ERAS brings that's differently? What, do you think your findings would have been different in the setting of ERAS? I do think that our hypothesis and possibly our findings may be different, um, especially with ERAS strategies, which encourage early resumption of oral intake, early ambulation. Um, I know that the International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer released their initial ERAS in 2016. It was updated in 2019. And, you know, you can see in the literature, ERAS studies are popping up everywhere. Um, 
I do think, you know, there are two studies that are fairly recent, um, one done at Johns Hopkins and one done at WashU that used an ERAS protocol with an epidural. Mm -hmm. Now, these are both sizable. There was 109 epidurals at Johns Hopkins and 305 at WashU. Mm -hmm. And both of them found, you know, there was no increase in venous thromboembolisms, and they both reported decreased narcotic use, and even one reported decreased pain scores. So I do think that this multi-component ERAS is helping to promote better outcomes, whether it be through the regional block or just the whole package that's encouraging patients to move along postoperatively. And one one additional thing that I was uh, wanted to ask you also is the data. What data do we have with regards to the impact of epidurals on pain scores and particularly opioid use? Because obviously it's a, it's a very relevant topic uh, these days. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And, you know, both those two studies um, cited decreased morphine equivalents um, post-op day zero to two. Um, and even, you know, with e-record being more available at many institutions, you know, we are able to track pain scores more effectively. And, you know, the study at WashU showed also that patients were reporting decreased pain scores. So I think that, you know, I think it's safe to say that epidurals are effective at reducing pain and yeah. opioid use. And as a follow-up question to that as well is the cost, obviously. Uh, impact of epidurals mm -hmm. on cost. Um, would you say epidurals are cost-effective? I mean, I wish I could say so, but there have been several cost-effective analyses um, performed on the epidural versus the traditional uh, patient-controlled anesthesia Um This, these are mostly performed in the UK. Um, you know, one particular study found that the epidural compared to a PCA actually cost about $1,200 more. Dollars, um, and they actually um, called it about $6,500 per pain-free day. And so based on that analysis, and, you know, this was you know, agreed with another study as well. They said that, you know, the epidural was not cost effective compared to other um, regional blocks. Interesting. So Sarah, just as we're coming to the, uh, to the final minutes of the uh, podcast, I wanted to ask you, what has been the impacts uh, of the results of this study in your institution or in your former institution? Uh, <laughs> what's going to be the impact in your future practice? Uh, do you, Would you routinely recommend epidurals to your patients? I think there's still a lot of mixed data on this question, especially because each study now kind of has a different way of using the epidural. Ours was just a database study, but many of these studies that are showing, you know, good results with the epidural are often part of these larger ERAS protocols. So I think it's very difficult to compare study to study. I do think what is clear from both recent studies as well as our database studies that there are hypotension-related complications that exist. And I think what that really brings up is what can we do better? How can we tackle some of these complications? Because if patients want these and they work for pain control, how can we address the challenges of the epidural? And I think at the end of the day, you know, I do and, and I will offer the epidural to my patients because, you know, I think a 
patient discussion, shared decision-making about the best way to help a patient recover. I think involving them in the decision and giving them all the options out there is going to be the best thing to help them recover. Sarah, thank you so, so much for this, uh, this really very interesting and enlightening uh, discussion. I really uh, enjoyed listening to you. I learned uh, a great deal. And uh, congratulations once again. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously we look forward to your future uh, research. Thank you, Dr. Ramirez, for having me. Of course, my pleasure.